invite you now to take out your Bibles and turn to John chapter 5. John 5, starting in verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? I'll sense the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for uh, the blessing of bringing us here. We thank you for the privilege of being called by your name. Uh, we thank you for the, the mercies of, of bringing us all here on these roads today. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would bless now the preaching of your word. Lord, may your spirit do what only you can. Uh, Lord, prepare our hearts and our minds to receive your word for what it is, the word of God and not the word of man. Lord, I pray that all that is said here this morning, that all that I speak would be true to your word and your intention and that you would cause your word to come alive in the hearts of your people. Lord, bless now the preaching of your word. Uh, may it be unto the edification of your saints and the conversion of sinners, and all of this to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we pick up again with our series in John, and we are jumping right back into the discourse that we had started last week. Uh, if you remember, uh, context here, Jesus had healed the man by the pool of Bethesda, and Jesus had healed this man on the Sabbath. And that had brought an accusation from the Jews of Sabbath breaking. Uh, and in his response to that charge, Jesus linked his own authority to the authority of the Father. You may remember Jesus said, My Father has been working until now, and I am working. And so we saw from verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking to kill him. Uh, both for his alleged Sabbath breaking and now also this alleged blasphemy, uh, making himself equal with God. And then as we saw last week, Jesus responded to that charge of blasphemy and he explained his relationship to the Father and did not deny the charge that he had made himself equal with God. But as we saw, he, he doubled down, he tripled down, and maybe even quadrupled down. He, he took things even farther in the claims that he made. For Jesus declared that he has the sovereign and divine power to raise the dead to life. Physically dead and spiritually dead. Jesus declared that he 
will be the judge of all at the final day of resurrection. And he declared that he had even been given that role of judge so that, verse 23, all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So we see Jesus did not shrink back at all from the charge that he had made himself equal to the Father, but rather he began to explain what his relationship to the Father was. And we pick up here again in the middle of this discussion. So Jesus has made these staggering claims about himself, and in our text this morning, he now establishes these claims for his hearers. And we can understand why he would. You can imagine the murmuring, the shock and disbelief in the crowd at hearing these things. Right? You just accused this man of being a, a Sabbath breaker and a blasphemer, and he says, hang on, <laughs> I am going to judge the living and the dead, right? so that you would honor me as you honor the Father. Uh, he goes even further yet, and so you can understand how these claims would perhaps warrant something of a defense. And so Jesus begins his defense in verse 31, but we'll start our text here in verse 30, uh, which really should have been covered last week. It connects to that previous section. Jesus said, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So rather than stepping back and saying, no, 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 I have not made myself equal with the Father, uh, Jesus just decides to show that he is in alignment with the Father. And so even in his role as judge, he explains, I will be perfectly aligned with my Father's will. Uh, even as Christ has asserted his equality with God, he makes it very clear that he is not a rival to the Father. He is not acting independently of the Father. He is not working for his own rival agenda. But even in his judgment, uh, in this too, he is serving the will of the Father. And so now we come to uh, his defense that he gives, verse 31. Jesus begins by saying, if I, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Now that is a very interesting statement from someone who has just claimed equality with the Father. So what, what does Jesus mean that his testimony is not true if he bears witness about himself? Well, this language of bearing witness would point us to a courtroom setting, uh, bearing witness or testifying. Now, in the law of God, the testimony of a single witness was not sufficient to establish a charge. Deuteronomy 19 verse 15 says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or in connection or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established and so this of course was a good and godly law that was given to protect the innocent a judge was not allowed to pass a sentence against someone uh, when it was simply a matter of one person's word against another. Right? Every matter was to be established on the basis of two or three witnesses. And just as a side note, the New Testament picks up this law and applies it. Uh, you may remember in Matthew 18 when Jesus gives the instructions for church discipline. Uh, he says that if your initial conversation with your brother... Uh, who sinned against you doesn't go well, right? Your brother refuses to repent. The next step, Matthew 18, 16, is to take one or two others along with you. Now, why? Well, Jesus quotes this exact law from Deuteronomy, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So we see that just as a single accusation was not enough for the civil courts in Israel, Neither is it to be considered enough for church courts. Every matter must be properly established. You do not take the word of a single person, a single accusation. Now, why is that? Because people lie. Because people make false 
accusations. And we see consistently that one of the central concerns of God's law is the protection of the innocent. And this is one of the problems in our day. Uh, You've probably heard the phrase, believe the victim. What they really mean by that is believe the accuser. Now it is true that with every accusation of some serious misdoing, there is a victim. But until the charge has been properly established, before it's been proven true, you don't know who the victim is. The person who makes the accusation very well might be a victim, as they claim, or they might be lying. They might be making a false accusation. If that's the case, then who is the real victim? It is the falsely accused. So God's law tells us before you will side with someone, before you'll pick a side, you must always ensure that you have enough facts. Otherwise, you may be part of perverting justice, skipping the God-appointed due process, and potentially condemning the innocent. We've seen in our day, a single false accusation is really all that's needed to completely dismantle someone's reputation. A single false claim can destroy them, which is why the ninth commandment is such a serious and important thing. What is the ninth commandment? Do not bear false witness against your neighbor. That is, do not unjustly destroy a person's good name. Proverbs says that a good name is more precious than silver. And so Christians must not be gossips. We must not be eager to pass on that juicy rumor that we've heard about so-and-so. Instead, we must be zealous for justice, to see every charge established properly, so that the innocent would never be condemned unjustly, either in a court of law or in the court of public opinion. So, this is likely what Jesus had in mind here. Uh, He's not at all saying that he is lying. Jesus never lied. Rather, he is likely referring to this biblical standard of justice, uh, recognizing that in the minds of his hearers, at the very least, for someone to testify about themselves would be insufficient. Every matter must be established by two or three witnesses. And we actually see the Pharisees bring up this exact point later in John chapter 8, where they claim that Jesus is bearing witness about himself, and therefore his testimony is not valid. It's worth pointing out that there, Jesus does not agree with them, that his testimony is not valid. And we ask the question, what witnesses would God the Son, through whom and for whom all things were made, possibly call to establish his authority. And so what we see is that although Jesus does not need to do this, as he will tell us, it is an accommodation to his hearers that he does give. Uh, It is for their sake that he presents these witnesses. Jesus says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, And I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. So this first verse here uh, seems to speak to Jesus' own self-understanding. Jesus says, I know that his testimony about me is true. As we've seen in John already, Jesus had a perfect inward awareness of the Father's will. Jesus knows who he is, where he came from, and where he is going, John 8, 13. And so, the claims that Jesus makes are therefore not simply his own, but rather he is speaking in accordance with the will of the Father. As he has already said, I do not speak of my own accord, but whatever the Father shows me, that is what I speak. And so, these claims that he makes are in accord with the Father's will. Verse 33. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. 
So now Jesus begins calling forth his witnesses. He is established, I do not need to do this, but I am doing it for your sake. He calls John the Baptist as one who has borne witness. And as we've already seen in John as well, this was, in fact, the very role of John. John 1, 6 and 7, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all may believe through him. So as we've seen, John's ministry was to witness to Christ, to bear witness, to testify to Christ. He was the voice of one crying, make straight the way of the Lord. He came to testify about Jesus, that he is the Son of God, that salvation is through him. And so Jesus here confirms what we have already known about John. Verse 34. Not that the testimony I received is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Remember again who Jesus is. He is God the Son, the eternal Word made flesh. Does God need the testimony of man to confirm or establish his own authority? No. So Jesus explains them, these witnesses I'm calling, I'm doing this for your sake. Uh, This is a, a condescension, an accommodation. Jesus coming down to our level to give us further evidence so that we may believe. And through believing may have life in his name. Now the very last prophecy of the Old Testament is Malachi 4 verse 5. And that was the promise that God would send the prophet Elijah. He would be a forerunner to turn the hearts of children to their fathers and the hearts of fathers to their children. And as it gets applied in the New Testament, we find out this was actually a prophecy about John the Baptist. Although, of course, he was not the literal Elijah reincarnated, which is why he denies being Elijah. Uh, His ministry was very similar. He lived in the wilderness. He called the king to repentance And even his clothing and his diet matched that of Elijah's. He wore a garment of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. And he ate uh, locusts and wild honey. Sounds delicious. John's birth was announced by an angel to his father, Zechariah, who declared that John would be great before the Lord. And that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from the womb. Uh, Luke 1, 17, this is what the angel said to Zechariah. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So the angel declared John's coming is the fulfillment of that prophecy from Malachi hundreds of years earlier. And there may actually be another Old Testament reference here in this text. Now let's continue with verse 35. Jesus says this of John. He was a burning and a shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So Jesus refers to John as a lamp. That's interesting because Psalm 132 verse 17 says, There I will make a horn to sprout for David... I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. Prepared a lamp for my anointed. Well, you may remember that the the very word Christ, in Greek Christos, means anointed, the anointed one. And so in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, this is the very word used in Psalm 132. Uh, This is therefore a statement that the Lord had prepared a lamp for his anointed one, a lamp for his Christ. Uh, Jesus refers to John as a lamp using the same Greek word uh, as in Psalm 132. So then, if this is what Jesus had in mind, then Psalm 132 is yet another Old Testament prophecy about John. So what I hope we see in all of this, if that sounds kind of random, why are we talking about all this stuff? Uh, What we want to see here is that John is no ordinary witness. 
right? Jesus didn't call just some random guy off the street to, to testify to him. Uh, but John's coming was prophesied in multiple places in the Old Testament as being the forerunner to Christ, to the Christ. His birth was announced by angels. He stands in the line of Old Testament prophets in the spirit and power of Elijah. And all of this was so that he would be able to testify with some authority that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And John did bear witness about Christ, about Jesus, declaring himself unworthy to even untie the straps of his sandals. John has borne witness about the truth. Believe his word that you may be saved. Verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So now we have the second witness called. Remember, Jesus is building his case. Uh, this matter is being established on the evidence of these witnesses. Again, not because Jesus actually needed to, but rather it's being done for our sake, that we may be saved. And so Jesus says that he has a greater testimony, a greater witness than even John, who was prophesied, announced by angels, and stood in the line of the prophets in the spirit and power of Elijah. A greater witness yet. What is this next witness? Jesus says, the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, these very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So his miracles, his teaching, uh, bringing salvation to sinners, these works testify to the identity of Christ. Now, no matter how you look at him, there is really no denying that Jesus is a remarkable man. Uh, even if you deny his claims, I, I do think that you have to acknowledge that he is by far the most influential figure in world history. His teachings have captivated people for centuries. Uh, the wisdom of his words, the insights they contain, their depth and their beauty have been admired by millions across the centuries. And as you read his words, you are struck, as were the Jews of his day, by the fact that he teaches with authority, not as the scribes, not as the teachers of their day. In fact, later in John, we'll see that there were officers sent to arrest Jesus who return empty-handed, and the Pharisees ask, why didn't you arrest him? And the officers respond, no one ever spoke like this man. Jesus' miracles, too, demanded a verdict. He performed mighty works throughout his ministry, casting out demons, opening the eyes of the blind, healing the lame and crippled, turning water to wine, even raising the dead to life. Jesus is referred to later as a man attested to us by God through mighty works. These signs, these works, they testified to the identity of Christ. It, they spoke to the reality that it was, in fact, the Father who had sent him. As later on, a man born blind who Jesus restores his sight will say, uh, we know God doesn't listen to sinners. Who has ever heard of a man born blind receiving his sight? So that man posed that challenge to the Jews. If God was not with him, he could do nothing. And so, of course, the greatest sign that Jesus performed, if we can refer to it as a sign, was his own resurrection. Jesus declares in John 10 that he was going to give up his life. He predicted this. He said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. Now, that's, that's one thing. But then he says, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Now just think of how mind-blowing it is to think that Jesus himself predicted his own death and resurrection. 
He declared it all beforehand. He declared for himself the authority to take up his life once he had laid it down. And as we know, everything happened precisely as he predicted. Jesus was arrested, abused, crucified, and on the third day, first day of the week, he rose from the dead. And so significant was his life and ministry that it has actually become the center point in our record of time. Now, we used to be honest about that. It used to be B.C. and A.D. before Christ, uh, and then uh, A.D. Anno Domine, Domini, uh, in the year of our Lord. Now, it's funny to me that secularists try to erase this reference to God by using uh, common era, C.E., and before common era. What monumental event has divided human history <laughs> such that it divides the common era <laughs> from before common era? Uh, try as they might, they can't quite erase this reality. It was the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm fine with using BC and, and BCE. I just think they should stand for Christ's empire and before Christ's empire. But this is another issue. But what we see is that the works of Christ demand a verdict. The teachings of Christ demand a verdict. His claims, his miracles, and especially his death and resurrection all demand a verdict. These works the Father gave him to do testify to him. They show that he is who he said he was. And as we've seen, this is the very reason why John has recorded all of these signs. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John has borne witness about the truth, and greater still, the very works that Jesus did bear witness about him that the Father had sent him. Believe their testimony that you may be saved. Next witness, let's read verse 37. <clears throat> and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. <laughs> the next witness Jesus calls is God the Father. Jesus says the Father himself has borne witness about me. Now what specifically Jesus has in mind here is not said. It's quite possible he was referring to the event at his baptism, uh, which although it is not recorded in John, uh, was likely well known uh, by John's readers at this time. Uh, remember what happened there. Jesus came up out of the water, and the Spirit descended on him in the form of a dove, and there was a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. <clears throat> it's also been suggested that Jesus could be referring to the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. Right? We think of as... Uh, as people would hear the words of Christ, the Holy Spirit would open up their hearts to receive what Christ is saying. Uh, that has been the experience of all of us if we are in Christ. Uh, that could be a way that God the Father testifies to his Son. Or perhaps could be referring in a general way to all of God's previous redemptive work, which as we'll see later was pointing us to Jesus Christ. So whatever Jesus specifically had in mind, Jesus claims that God the Father himself has borne witness about him. God the Father is the next witness. Then Jesus says to the Jews, His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Remember that Christ is the fullest revelation of the Father. The Jews do not believe Jesus. They do not believe the one whom God had sent. Jesus says this proves that they have never heard the voice of God. For if they had heard the voice of God, they would recognize it in the words of Jesus who speaks whatever the Father shows him. They do not believe Jesus, which proves they have not seen the form of God, 
because Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the exact imprint of his nature. And so if they do not recognize the Father in Jesus, it shows that they have not known the Father. And they do not have his word abiding in them, for Jesus is the Logos, the very word of God, and they rejected him. So these Jews who claimed that Jesus was the blasphemer and Sabbath breaker, those who thought themselves to be defending the honor of God against Christ, Jesus says to them, you don't know God. You've not heard his voice. You've not seen his form. You've not stored up his word in your hearts. You don't have a clue what God is really like. For you reject the very one that God has sent. His very word made flesh, the only perfect keeper of the law, his perfect image now manifest among you. So once again, we see this reality spelled out. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So John has borne witness about Christ. The works Jesus performed have borne witness about him. And God the Father has himself borne witness to Christ. Believe God and receive his Son. All right, we have one more witness to look at in this text. Let's continue reading verse 39. Jesus says something amazing. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So the final witness that Jesus calls forth is scripture itself. Now, remembering that at the time of Jesus, there was no New Testament, uh, for it was not written yet, because it was all going to be about what he would accomplish. Uh, what then is Jesus referring to when he says, the scriptures? Well, he's talking about the Old Testament. Now, that is a fascinating and loaded statement made by Christ. The final witness Jesus calls forth to testify to him is the Old Testament. Testament. You search the scriptures. You study the scriptures thinking that in them you have eternal life. Yet it is they that bear witness about me. Now here is one of the key passages that informs our approach to the Bible and specifically the Old Testament. And that is this. The entire Bible, including and especially the Old Testament according to Christ, bears witness to him. Right? Jesus has just said that the very fact that they reject him proves that they don't know the Father. And now he does the same thing with the scriptures. Right? How does he know? Because they reject the one the Father has sent. You study this word, you pour over the scriptures, you think you have eternal life, through the scriptures, you don't know what the scriptures are even about. For the scriptures bear witness to me, yet you refuse to come to me for life. Jesus says the Old Testament is about him. It testifies to him. It bears witness to him. And so if you are understanding what is really, truly there, what it's really about on its own terms, you would conclude that it is pointing ultimately to Christ. Now I'll put a pin in that thought for a moment and we'll return to it, but let's move firstly to verse 41. Jesus says, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and yet you do not receive me. I do not receive glory from people. Jesus explains here that he is not seeking their approval. Right? That is not his main goal. Now we know that with the power and the knowledge that Jesus had, right, knowing the hearts of men, if Jesus had wanted to, 
He could have easily presented himself as the kind of Messiah that the Pharisees were after. Right? He could have spoken all the words they, that their itching ears wanted to hear. He could have catered to their desires. He could have done and said exactly what they wanted. But Jesus explains that he is not after hollow acclamation. Just as he doesn't need human testimony, he also is not seeking after human approval. He is not doing what he does to receive praise from men. He is instead working to honor his father. And in the process, he is doing much more for men. His food is to do the will of his father who is in heaven. We must seek to be like Christ. We too must not live our lives for human approval. It can be a real temptation for all of us to seek glory from people. Now for the minister, there is the temptation to tell the people what you think they want to hear. Don't be too hard on those particular sins. Certainly don't name those sins. Speak smooth words, as the people asked the false prophets to do. Speak smooth words to us. Say what the itching ears want to hear. And I think that can be the temptation for all of us, to be man-pleasers. To be so concerned with receiving approval from others that we would make it our ultimate aim. That we would shape our lives around the opinions of others, about what they say or think of us. Brothers and sisters, let us not be man-pleasers. Let us be God-pleasers. As one of the Puritans said, Fear of the Lord is esteeming the frowns and smiles of God as more significant than the frowns and smiles of the world. Whose approval are you after? Which master are you serving? And ironically, if you want to truly do good for your fellow man, being a man-pleaser is not the path. So be like Christ. Do not seek glory from people, but seek to glorify God. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. So Christ does not seek glory from men, particularly not from men who do not love God. The love of God, if they had it, would cause them to love Christ who comes in his Father's name. And so I hope we're seeing a pattern. If you do not receive Christ, then that proves that you do not know God. You have not seen God. His word is not in your heart. If you do not receive Christ, then you have not understood the scriptures. If you do not receive Christ, then the love of the Father is not within you. You have no love for God. You do not know him at all. Jesus says, if another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Now, the time of Jesus was, for good reason, a time of great messianic expectation. They were looking for their Messiah, for their Christ to come. As we've covered in the past, there were even Old Testament prophecies regarding the timing of the coming Messiah. And so for a variety of reasons, the Jews were very anxiously looking anywhere to see where is this Messiah. We know he's coming soon. Acts chapter 5 mentions that there were uh, false messiahs. Uh, uh, Theodos and Judas the Galilean are both mentioned by Gamaliel. Gamaliel? Gamaliel? Uh, We see other historical sources uh, mentioning other false messiahs, men who claimed to be somebody, who came and developed a following, but they were killed and their followers dispersed. And some of these false messiahs even had the support of the Jews. 
right? So Jesus refers to these false messiahs as men who come in their own names, right? You receive these men who come in their own names. Uh, They were willing to receive glory from one another. These false messiahs saying what the people wanted to hear, uh, to be a deliverer out from under the Roman oppression. Uh, They were willing to receive glory from one another, but would not seek the glory that comes from the only God. So we see their hearts were not set on glorifying God. They were not aiming to please him. And so is it any wonder then that they did not receive the one whom God had sent? They were facing the wrong direction. Their hearts and minds were set on the wrong things. And Jesus says, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. D.A. Carson writes, It will not be Jesus who presses charges and prosecutes the Jews he is addressing. His primary purpose is to save, not to condemn, John 3.17. In any case, there is no need for him to assume this role, for Moses will be their accuser. The very Moses whom they esteem so highly as the mediator of the Sinai covenant, the one through whom God had given the law they so highly venerated. And here as we return, uh, and here we return to this concept that the scriptures are a witness to Christ. Right? The entire Old Testament bears witness to Christ. And here Jesus says, Moses wrote of me. Moses wrote about Christ. Jesus continues to turn the tables on his opponents. So we ask, in the debate between Jesus and the Jews of his day, whose side is Moses on? Whose side is the law on? Jesus says, at the last day, I won't have to accuse you of anything, for Moses himself will be your accuser. For Moses himself wrote of Christ. Now that is amazing. Jesus says, if you really understood what the law was about, the first five books, the books of Moses, if you understood what that was about, it would be pointing you to me. Moses wrote of me, Jesus says. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. Now, it's true in a sense. You search the scriptures, you will find eternal life, but only if those scriptures are pointing you to Christ, only if you are seeing what they're truly all about. Now, this all raises a question, and that is, how do the scriptures bear witness to Christ? How is it that Jesus can say that Moses wrote of him? I don't know if you've read through the Old Testament lately, uh, but if you do so looking for the name Jesus of Nazareth, you will be disappointed. It is not there. So then how can Jesus say that the entire Old Testament and Moses himself wrote of him? There are actually many ways, and we'll cover just a few this morning, and we'll wrap up with this. Uh, First, through prophecy and fulfillment. Now, there are many Old Testament prophecies of the coming Messiah. We're likely familiar with Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7, around Christmas time. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Who did Isaiah write about? That is Christ. So we see here a child was promised to come from the royal line of David who would receive a kingdom, an everlasting dominion. And these titles given indicate this child would be divine. Also in Isaiah is the prophecy of the suffering servant. It's fun if you want to trick your friends. Play the game Old Testament or New Testament. 
uh, and then read this passage and tell them to name it for you. Isaiah 53. He has borne our grief and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Who did Isaiah write about here? This is Christ. The New Testament applies Psalm 16 as having been a prophecy of the resurrection where it says that he was not abandoned to Sheol, nor did the Holy One see corruption. Right, that gets applied as a prophecy. David spoke of the Christ, knowing that he would be raised without seeing corruption. Likewise, Psalm 2 is applied to Christ. Right, as we sang this morning, the Gentiles raged and they plotted against Christ. The church applies that. Against your servant Jesus were raised Pontius Pilate, Herod, the Romans, and the Jews. But Christ was the first begotten of the dead. And he was exalted, and the nations are his heritage. Other promises that we see fulfilled. Abraham was promised that the entire world would be blessed through him. And in Galatians, we see this applied through the going forth of the gospel. Uh, the gospel of Christ going out to the Gentiles. All the world being blessed through Abraham. And there's so many more that we could spend several sermons, many sermons, just looking at the prophecies and promises of Christ. But for the sake of time, let's move on to the next way that the Old Testament points to Christ, and that is through types and shadows. Through types and shadows. Now that sounds like complicated language, uh, but we need to know that this is not something that was just made up by some creative scholars or theologians. Right? This wasn't just the egghead sitting around trying to find something to do. But this is the very language of the New Testament itself as applied to the Old Testament. Hebrews 10 verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are offered year after year make perfect those who draw near. So catch that. The author of Hebrews says that the law had shadows, but it was not the true form. The law prefigured something greater. You read through Hebrews, and this will become clear. The animal sacrifices were not the true form. They were simply foreshadowing something greater. The human priests who were themselves sinners and needed atonement made for their sins, therefore they too, the priesthood itself, was pointing to something else. Paul even summarizes the ceremonial law in Colossians 2, referring to festivals, food and drinks, uh, new moons and Sabbaths, and says, these are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. So according to the divinely inspired interpretation given in the New Testament itself, what was the law about? What were the sacrifices pointing to? What was the priesthood pointing to? The ceremonial law pointing to? It was all pointing to Jesus Christ, who offered a greater once-for-all sacrifice, who is a perfect, eternal, and sinless high priest. Moses wrote of Christ. Furthermore, we see patterns and events in the Old Testament that provide patterns of what God planned to do in the future. For example, Paul refers to Adam as being a type of the one who was to come. He was a type of Christ. And so consider what we have in Adam, and hear these, these echoes, this pattern. Adam was a covenant head whose representation would have consequences for those covenantally united to him. Or as the song puts it more poetically, this, my soul, you were born, you were born into. What this man has done, it all extends to you. You notice how that line could apply equally either to Adam or to Christ. The Old Testament is loaded with these types. Consider Joseph and hear the echoes of Christ. Joseph was a beloved son, betrayed into the hands of sinners, abandoned for dead, 
but exalted by God to bring a great salvation to his people. Or consider Moses, a deliverer, miraculously saved as an infant from the decree of a wicked ruler who would then be raised to deliver God's people. Or David, covered this in Sunday school recently, an anointed shepherd king from the Lion of Judah, from the town of Bethlehem, who came to represent the people of God to win a battle that they could not. There is so much more than what we have time for this morning. The whole Bible is, in fact, the grand story of redemption. This is the thread that can be traced from beginning to end. God redeeming his people to bring about his covenant purposes and promises. There are themes, fulfillments, contrasts, types, shadows, prophecies, and more that point to Christ. And if you read Moses, if you read the book of the law and understand what it's truly about, you will be directed to look for a savior. And that is because for sinners, for those of us fallen in Adam, which is all of us, there is no life to be found in the law apart from Christ. The law itself condemns you. For what you will find is that you are unable to keep the law's commands. It is therefore a mirror. It shows us our condition. It reveals to us that we are sinners. And so if you read the law and don't get this, then you haven't really understood it. It was meant to point beyond itself. It was meant to show you your need for a savior. The law points to Christ in part by condemning you. The law points to Christ in part by condemning you. For you will see that you are unable to live up to the standards of the law. God's law requires perfection, and none of us are perfect, but all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We therefore need a Savior. We need atonement, a perfect sacrifice to reconcile us to God. And Christ has offered himself once for all as a sacrifice to reconcile us to God. He has fulfilled the positive demands in his perfect life, taken our penalty for breaking the law upon himself. And so the law, among other things, shows us our need for Christ. Moses wrote of him, the entire Old Testament is therefore Christian scripture. It bears witness to Christ. And so John the Baptist has borne witness to Christ. The works Jesus has performed bear witness about him. God the Father has himself borne witness about Christ. And finally, we see the scriptures bear witness to Christ. Jesus has supplied his two or three witnesses to establish this matter. And as he said, these witnesses are given for our sake that we may be saved. No one will be able to use the excuse that the matter has not been sufficiently established. When you stand before Christ on Judgment Day, no excuses will stand. So for the people of God, let us receive the authority of Christ and live out every command he has given to us. And to those who do not know the Lord, come to Christ, believe the testimony of these witnesses, that you may have life. Amen.